0: Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. This
1: week on Babel, John talks to Hassan Hassan, director of the Non State Actors program at the Center for Global Policy, about Shia militias in Iraq and the work of his late colleague Hisham al Hashmi. Then Natasha, John, and I discuss the effects of Iranian backed militias in Iraq.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Hassan Hassan is the director of the Program on Non-State Actors and Geopolitics at the Center for Global Policy and the editor-in-chief of its new online journal, New Lines Magazine. In the last decade, he's emerged as one of the world's leading experts on the Islamic State Group, which occupied and then was expelled from eastern Syria, where he grew up. We first met about 10 years ago in Abu Dhabi, where he was working as a journalist and analyst after obtaining his master's degree in international relations from the University of Nottingham. The book he co-wrote on ISIS in 2015, Inside the Army of Terror, was justly and widely acclaimed and was translated into more than a dozen languages. Hassan, welcome to Babel.
2: Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak to you.
0: Your article in New Lines draws on the work of a former colleague to explore the rise of Shia militias in Iraq. What are the core conclusions of that research?
2: The core work was focused on this idea that there's a new regime in Iraq being formed, And at the forefront of this regime, or the people who control this new regime in Iraq, are Shia militias beholden to Iran. Uh, These are the groups that are most loyal to Iran. And the work distinguishes between two types of uh, militias, the more nationalist, uh, the more loyal to local clergy, versus the ones that are loyal to Iran and the supreme leader in Iran.
0: So tell me a little bit about the researcher who worked on this, Hisham al-Hashimi.
2: Hisham al-Hashimi is mostly known as an expert on ISIS. He's really the foremost ISIS expert in Iraq and even globally. He understood ISIS best. He helped the Iraqi government and the U.S.-led coalition understand ISIS and track some of the most important figures that uh, operated within ISIS. And that was because of the expertise that he had. He was part of the insurgency from which ISIS emerged the anti-American insurgency after 2003. His radicalization started earlier and his association with some of these groups enabled him to understand these groups very well, but also because of the involvement in the insurgency. Also, he knew some of these people who operated within ISIS firsthand. He fought alongside them. He was a clerk supervising some of the most powerful and largest insurgency organizations within Iraq after the U.S. invasion in 2003.
0: So that's a remarkable journey for somebody who was born Shia, became a Sunni, fought as an insurgent, and then became a trusted advisor to the prime minister, to Mustafa al-Kazmi. That is a pretty unusual journey. What does that tell us about Iraq? And what does it tell us specifically about Hashem?
2: So the thing about Hisham, is if you go back to the 90s and early 2000s, yes, he went through these radicalization phases. Like you said, he embraced uh, hardline Sunni views in the 1990s. He became part of the insurgency in the 2000s. But he always had issues with the people who ruled Iraq, the bad guys, essentially. So he was against Saddam Hussein. Uh, he was jailed by the regime of Saddam Hussein in the 1990s. And he had issues with al-Qaeda in Iraq in the 2000s. And that was one of the reasons, actually, he left Iraq just before 2009 for Syria, before he came back during the government of the former prime minister, Nur al-Maliki. He returned to Iraq and became an advisor and trusted advisor and expert on ISIS. So if you trace his journey throughout his adulthood, he always had problems with people who ruled Iraq. And now, you know, after ISIS was defeated, the new bad guys in Iraq essentially were the Shia militias. And that's when he started to have these tensions with the Shia militias. And it started around the time that ISIS was being defeated in Iraq in 2016, when he was threatened directly by one of the most powerful leaders of the most powerful uh, militia organizations in Iraq, known as Asahi al-Haq, led by Qais al-Khazali, who threatened him directly and told him, look, you need to focus on the ISIS and the Sunni extremism. Forget about Shia groups. So he kind of threatened him, if you continue to talk about Shia militias, you'll have troubles with us. And Uh, they killed him in July. And that's what, you know, some sources are telling us, that this person and his organization was one of two organizations involved and implicated in his assassination in July. October last year was a time when young Shia Iraqis started to protest against the Shia dominated political class in Baghdad. That was really unexpected. That was just a year after ISIS was defeated in Iraq and after many scholars called the, uh, the first non-sectarian election took place in Iraq. Hisham al hashimi emerged out of this movement, the young movement in central and southern Iraq that was really fed up and had enough with all these political elites that were ruling Iraq. And even after the defeat of ISIS, they never tried to sort of uh, move away from this sectarian politics and all this sectarian, at least in discourse. And the young people rebelled against them. And they said, you know what, you need to have a technocratic government led by non-corrupt elites Or politicians. And Hisham started to become kind of one of the most outspoken figures against these militias, against the political class. And he started to have these problems and tension with the very militias that would kill him later. It's actually around the same time that he started to work on this report that really mapped out all the Shia militias that were controlling Iraq from the south all the way to the west and north. In this report, he was basically tracking how they make money, how they control Iraq, how they manipulate the system, how they started to take over the system from within and from without. And his conclusion is really that there's a new elite in Iraq, a new regime. It's the new Saddam That's controlling Iraq from within, even though you have someone like Mustafa al-Kazmi being the prime minister, and he's a good guy, generally speaking. He's seen as as a person who represents that sort of post-sectarian system or politics in Iraq. But really underneath that, the deep state, if you like, is these uh, Shia militias controlled by Iran.
0: You've spent years studying ISIS. What is similar and what's different? in the way these militias operate.
2: If you think about it, the Shia militias and Sunni militias are two faces of the same coin. They're hijacking their society and the causes and the grievances of their societies to claim that they represent these demographics. ISIS sold itself as the vanguard of this Sunni revivalism or the grievances of Sunni, as as a kind of representative of them, but it was really rejected by those demographics. That it claimed to represent. Same thing exactly goes for uh, Shia militias. They claimed that they are protector of the Shia demographics in Iraq, and they fought against ISIS, and they were seen for some time as the heroes of Iraq because they sacrificed themselves in the fight against ISIS as the security forces were treated in the face of ISIS. But then just a year, within a few months, they emerged as the enemies of this very demographics they claimed to represent. They hijack the grievances, the legitimate grievances of their communities, and they go further into imposing their own ideology on these communities.
0: You grew up in the eastern part of Syria, close to the Iraqi border, and you have witnessed firsthand what it looks like when the U.S. is very hands-on about reconstituting political order, like it did in Iraq, and what it looks like when the U.S. is very hands-off, like in Syria. What lessons do you think Americans should draw from the last 20 years of direct involvement in the areas that you grew up in?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's always a hard question because on one hand, we do need the U.S. to play a role in the region. If the other choice, again, is like China, Russia, and and so on, or Iran in this case. But on the other hand, the problem is the U.S. does just enough to deal with the problem and then it leaves it to fester and come back. The U.S. intervened in Libya and left the day after. In Syria, it left it. It didn't intervene against Bashar Assad. In Iraq, it occupied Iraq for some time. And in all these different places, even though we have different models, we see the same result, which is failure. And I think the key thing here is not really intervention or lack of intervention. It's really staying long enough to see the results. And in each place, there's a failure of being there. Uh, leading. And I think that's a key thing. In Iraq, the U.S. is there, but it's not there at the same time. It's not there, meaning it's not supporting the right people. There's always a change of policy. It's almost always six-month plan. There's no long-term sort of planning. And this applies across the board. It applies in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, and Libya.
0: So Phil Gordon
2: has a new book out
0: that argues that the U.S. just shouldn't be involved in regime change. It never works out, so we shouldn't even start. Am I hearing you say that not only should the U.S. stay involved, but it should be more deeply engaged in making sure that the outcome is closer to what serves U.S. long-term
2: interests? I think this really goes back to a bigger question. What is the U.S. role in the whole region? If you make a decision that the U.S. needs to be there at some point, that it has interest in the region, whether you're talking about economic interest, allies in the region... Then it follows that you have to do something to make sure that you're part of the solution, part of this long-term stability. If you decide that the U.S., if we here in the U.S. make a decision that the U.S. shouldn't be there anyway and should just retreat, what follows from that is a whole different way of thinking. There's a flawed logic of saying, you know, kind of starting from point three rather than point one in the sense that you don't start from the initial logic of why the U.S. is there.
0: As a final question, how would you, as somebody who grew up in the Middle East, persuade Americans that they should really care about the long-term trajectory of the region?
2: One thing we do, you know, whether at work here or intellectually different, is to call for a way for the U.S. to serve its interests. We believe that the U.S. has interests and we need to protect these interests. But at the same time, you can protect your interests while doing the right thing. And usually they actually come together. It's not like, can we do this and do the right thing? No, doing the right thing actually serves uh, American interests in the world because the U.S. has a good idea, which is you know democracy, doing good work in the world versus all the bad ideas that we have in the region and beyond.
0: Hassan Hassan, thank you very much for joining us on Babel today.
2: Thank you very much indeed.
0: Next up, John, Natasha and I discuss
1: the effects of Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. So Hesham al-Heshami's story is really quite remarkable. And I think it also hammers home just how many different groups have capitalized on instability in Iraq over the past two decades or so. From al-Qaeda, the groups involved in the insurgency against the United States, ISIS, and then now Shia militias. I wanted to start by asking about your experiences. What do these kinds of groups offer to their communities Or maybe better, what do they claim to offer to their communities?
0: You know, in some ways, it feels to me like they do what tribes used to do more effectively. This is one of the things we described in our Ties That Bind study a year ago, that they provide security and stability in a very unstable world. And people feel if the government can't provide, then somebody has to. If everything is unpredictable, you can't live your life. So you need some predictability, and it ends up sort of being a tax in many ways in the folks I've spoken to. Natasha, you've worked in both Syria and Iraq, where these groups in many ways have taken off.
3: Yeah, and I I would actually liken their motivations and their behavior more to gangs or even the mafia especially in the case of Iraq, but could also say that about Lebanon even. And now, unfortunately, I see that happening in Syria as well. And Iran is starting to do that through more cultural institutions and things like that in various parts of, especially in Eastern Syria. John, I know that
1: last year you visited Mosul and Northern Iraq. And I wonder if there were any stories that stood out to you, or any examples of sort of how these militias were impacting people's lives there that you had a chance to speak to?
0: You know, first we saw the militias and you could see because they had clearly Shia flags in clearly non-Shia areas, they advertised their presence, they advertised their control. You would see posters of Iranian religious figures, which are far into Iraq. And there was a clear sign that there was a new sheriff in town. We spoke to some families who had talked about being dispossessed by some of these militias. And one of the interesting things is that the militia story is that they are protecting against Sunnis in ISIS and al-Qaeda. What others said is those Sunnis you were just talking to are all in ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and you need the Shia militia to protect the population from them. And it seems to me that the presence of these groups, and most importantly, the absence of any adjudication process, means that the groups get to run the adjudication process. The groups get to decide who can be trusted and who can't be trusted. And the groups end up putting their thumb in the scale in a way that preserves their centrality and marginalizes their opponents, rather than creating a space where the government can say, no, as a citizen, you have a right.
3: Yeah, I actually, unfortunately, saw the presence of Assad, Ahl Haq, and some other militias earlier on when I was... Interviewing refugees for resettlement to the United States, actually, and interviewed dozens of Iraqis. And time and time again, most of the interviews, especially towards the end of my time there in 2015 even, they were all related to persecution by these Shia militias. And in some cases, it was for money. But in other cases, it was just to terrorize these Sunni communities. And I think now it's really unfortunate because even in Mosul, like John was alluding to, is that you see basically this demographic shift where these Shia militias are coming in and and sort of distributing land to their followers and their different members.
1: I wanted to ask as well about Iran's role in all of this. And in Hashem al-Hashemi's work, he distinguished between different types of Shia militias, saying some of them are actually loyal to local clerics, uh, while others are loyal to Iran and, and loyal to the Iranian supreme leader. And I wanted to get your take on what that looks like for a militia to be pro-Iranian or backed by Iran. Kind of How does that manifest itself?
0: I'm sure that there are issues of funding. I'm sure there are issues of training and arming and all those kinds of things. I'm sure there are issues of command and control. I'm not sure how you'd see that on the ground. The other thing I'd heard is that the Iranians have been investing in Iraq for years and years. And not only have they been investing in Iraq, but people told me the Iranians have the same people working with the same police commissioners, And local politicians, year after year after year, they get to know the communities. The United States and other Western powers come in. They have people who are there for three months. They rotate out. Nobody knows anything. People don't know the local language. The Iranians have had a slow and steady investment in the grassroots in Iraq since before the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. And that has allowed them to slowly build their influence with all kinds of people in a way that Western powers which have more money, but much less idea of how to use it.
3: Yeah, and I I think you see this in Syria as well right now. But what I would say is that you did kind of see the difference in the protests last year, when Tad al-Sadr, for example, and Sistani, who are very influential Iraqi clerics in Iraq, initially supported the protests, actually, and said that they were going to get rid of corruption, etc., and then slowly somehow withdrew their support for the protesters. And there was immediately a huge violent crackdown on those protesters. And I think that speaks to to a couple of things. I think it speaks to the power that Iranian-backed militias and Iran itself and the Quds Force uh, have built up in Iran. But I also think it points to the fact that even Shia groups were rising up. And that kind of shows that this sort of corruption Is also hurting Shia groups in Basra who, you know, they turn on the faucet and brown water comes out. And you have an oil rich nation with not enough electricity. And I think that you see the population really getting very aggressive and irritated about this, for lack of a better word.
1: I was struck by the word that uh, Hassan Hassan used in his interview just now with you, John, where he said that in some ways, some of these Shia militias have become the enemies of the very communities they claim to represent. It certainly does seem like this fissure is widening between them.
3: And it seems in a way, Hassan mentioned this, I believe, in the article, that the rise of ISIS was essentially almost a blessing in disguise for these groups because it took kind of the limelight off of them and sort of their misdeeds, which, as I mentioned, were very extensive during the early ISIS days, if you will, in terms of kidnappings of people in in Baghdad and these types of behaviors. But when the rise of ISIS happened, even in Iran— There was much more support for this kind of external Iranian influence in other parts of the region. And I actually, I spoke to an Iranian journalist the other day who said in the early phases of even the Syrian war, most Iranians just thought that Bashar al-Assad was a brutal dictator, he was a murderer, etc. And every time they had an article that they put up about the war in Syria, that would be the comment section. And that started to change in 2014. And that was because of the rise of ISIS. And you also saw sort of the unveiling of the Kutzforce. Force. And you started seeing Qasem Soleimani, who had been kind of a shadowy figure, just appearing in public and in the media all over the place because they rose up as these sort of heroes. But in that kind of as the dust settled, it became very clear that they took advantage of all of that by entrenching their tentacles even further in all aspects of both Iraq and Lebanese society, I would say, too.
0: You know, and then the real question in all of this is how do you transition from a place where you have a rapacious, non-governmental security force into a place where you actually have government control and rule of law and those other kinds of things? And the record's not great. And the record's not great when the government has its own history of difficulty providing services. The U.S. had an ink spot strategy in Iraq where they thought we'd provide security and then expand out. But once these groups get enmeshed, as Sicily found for many years, once you have a mafia and there's a whole business operation and they control the courts and other things, it becomes very, very hard to reestablish confidence that there's a system. I think the Iraqi leadership has been focused on this for a large number of years, and it's not getting easier.
3: Yeah, I think that lack of trust really says it all actually even during the COVID-19 pandemic you saw not just the healthcare system collapsing which was kind of unavoidable I think in Iraq for all of the other reasons that we talked about including a lot of the capital flight throughout the past few years but you know you also see families going in and out of what is supposed to be an isolation ward you see people beating doctors unconscious in Iraq because their relatives were died from the disease. And there's no justice. There's no accountability because if that person knows somebody, then they get off. And I think that's unfortunately a common trait of these post-conflict environments.
1: And with no outlet for those grievances, I suppose it's possible that this cycle begins again and a new group emerges to capitalize on the grievances.
0: Although in point of fact, some societies are able to turn the corner they do truth and reconciliation and they build confidence in the courts i mean it's it's a very important process it's a difficult process it requires tremendous leadership from inside i think you can't run it from outside but we've seen leaders emerge in lots of places who've been able to do it and i think one of the interesting things about iraq is that Iraq does have some very interesting leaders. Iraq does have some people who are not only courageous, Hisham Hashemi was, but who are genuinely patriotic. And I think it's early to write off either Iraq or Syria as being hopelessly mired in, in corruption and conflict. But it's also important to recognize that this is a supremely important task if the rest of society is going to be back on its feet if there's going to be the sort of vibrant economic activity you need, all those sorts of things. It's very hard to do if people just don't trust that you can resolve disputes in some fair way.
1: Well, I think on that note of optimism, we'll wrap it up. Certainly daunting challenges, but there is some hope. Join us again next week for a Mese episode. And thank you, John and Natasha, for joining me.
0: Thank you, Will. Thanks, Will. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSASMideast.